0: Hi, everybody. It's Derek, and this is Foreign Exchanges for September 29th, 2020. As always, thanks to you for listening, for checking out the podcast. Uh, If you enjoy this interview and you want to uh, read more and get better acquainted with international affairs, with American foreign policy. Uh, hear more interviews like this. Uh, please go and check out uh, my newsletter, Foreign Exchanges, fx.substack.com. Uh, sign up for the free email list, uh, or and or subscribe. Uh, help support the. The, the newsletter and the podcast so that I can continue to do more of these. Uh, if you're already on the free email list, thank you. If you're already subscribed, uh, double thank you. Uh, but if you're not, give it a give it a try. Check it out. I'm about to be joined here in a couple of minutes by Josh Kuchera. Josh is the Turkey Caucasus editor for Eurasianet, which uh, for my money is one of the best, uh, if not the best, Uh, sites for checking out news and commentary uh, about what's happening in the Caucasus and in Central Asia. Uh, Those are two places that I don't think get enough kind of uh, uh, coverage in traditional Western media, and Eurasianet does a great job of uh, staying on top of events there, so I would uh, highly recommend you check them out. And I'll put a link to Eurasianet uh, Uh, in the show description so you can go check them out directly um Foreign exchanges has been on a little bit of a break for the last couple of days. I've decided to take a long weekend, and, and uh, it had been a couple of months since I had a day off, so I decided to do that. Uh, and, of course, in the meantime, uh, something major happened in the world, which was a resumption in fighting between Armenia and Azerbaijan over the Nagorno-Karabakh region, uh, which is disputed Armenian enclave inside uh, Azerbaijan, uh, that is occasionally, you know, somewhat it's kind of semi-regularly, I guess, uh, the a source of conflict between those two countries. Uh, it has been the cause of two wars, one in uh, 1918 and 1921, uh, and another in 1988-ish uh, at a low level, kind of during the, the last days of the Soviet Union, uh, through the early 1990s, 1992, 93, 94, uh, once the Soviet Union fell, it became a, a full-blown war and and was then uh, settled with a peace deal that was brokered by Russia and, and forced, uh, uh, or kind of with the collaboration of uh, the OSCE, um, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. Uh, so it's already caused a couple of wars uh, ever since, uh, since 1994-ish, uh, it has been... Uh, As I say, the sort of regular source of conflict uh, between these two countries, it has become an immutable fixture of politics in both Armenia and Azerbaijan, uh, and uh, it has flared up again over the past couple of days. Starting Sunday, uh, we will try to get Josh's uh, take on what has happened, one of the issues with covering this region and trying to understand uh, what is ha- what is happening at any given moment is that you get some wildly divergent uh, interpretations of events by the, the different sides uh, and the media in both Armenia and Azerbaijan. Uh, so we'll try to unpack that a little bit and understand where things are. I want to be very clear uh, that this is a still-developing situation. There is still uh, fighting going on. It's been three days now uh, since Sunday. Um, and so, I mean, I asked Josh when we start the interview, what is the situation right now as we stand? It's, uh, Tuesday morning in the United States on the East coast, uh, on September 29th. Uh, and so if you're listening to this tomorrow or the next day or the day after that, or, uh, you know, who knows whenever, uh, you may, you know, the situation may be much different than, uh, it is now. We'll try to get into, you know, what, uh, what to expect moving forward, but I just want to be clear about the limitations of this medium, uh, and, you know, when we are having this conversation, and, uh, you you know, what the snapshot is of the situation at that time. Um, We will try to dig in a little bit to the history of Nagorno-Karabakh and how it became uh, a flashpoint. We will spend... Most of our time on the political issues, both uh, within Armenia and within Azerbaijan and regionally, uh, I think there is a, a big component of this conflict that uh, is regional and that's worrisome because that means it can expand very quickly into a much larger, wider conflict. And I think even you know, if we drill down to this specific incident, uh, there is a, a big geopolitical component to it uh, that we will try to, uh, to understand, or, uh, you know, maybe Josh will set me right and, and tell me that I'm wrong. Uh, either way, we'll, we'll learn something, right? Uh, so I am going to get him on the line here, and we will get started with the interview. All right, I'm being joined, as I said in the intro, by Josh Kuchera, the Turkey and Caucasus editor for Eurasianet, Eurasianet.org. Uh, Josh, thanks for coming on the show.
1: Uh, Sure, but thanks for having me.
0: So I want to get into the background uh, of what's happening right now uh, in the flare-up and in in the Armenian-Azerbaijani conflict uh, that began on Sunday. Uh, But I think before we step back and and look at the context, uh, the first thing we should do, bearing in mind, as I already said in the introduction, that this is Uh, Tuesday morning, September 29th, Tuesday evening where you are, uh, September 29th. uh, This is a developing situation, so this is going to be, by the time people listen to this episode, it's going to be a little bit out of date. Uh, But let's talk about uh, what the situation is right now, um, you know, on the ground as you understand it.
1: Well, so what happened on uh, Sunday morning local time um, was that uh, Azerbaijan launched uh, a major offensive against uh, the Armenian forces that control uh, Nagorno-Karabakh and the surrounding territories. Um, it's still very unclear, sort of the, the military um, kind of configuration of what's going on. All we hear is, is informa- official information from the ministries of defense of both sides. Uh, which are are hard to trust. Um, and there's claims and counterclaims. And so, I mean, if you're trying to um, sort of sort out what's actually happening militarily on the ground, it's pretty difficult. Um, but what's clear is that this is, I think, the biggest um, offensive that's been undertaken in the war since they signed a ceasefire in 1994, uh and uh what the ultimate aim of this uh is it's it remains unclear um but it is uh does seem to be azerbaijan's most ambitious attempt yet to get back the lands that it lost uh in that war with the uh, with the Armenians in the
0: early nineteen nineties as you suggest it's it's seemed to me um you know as a as somebody who reads about the the region isn't really expert in it, but it seems like one of the um, most challenging aspects of covering this story for a journalist is the wildly divergent (laughs) stories that come out uh, from the two sides about any incident that happens on the border. Uh, What are the stories that... The Armenians are telling and the Azerbaijanis are telling about Sunday, about why why this kind of uh, started on Sunday. And, and what's your interpretation? Right. Well, I think in this case, it's not that hard to figure out. I mean, so Azerbaijan announced
1: that it is undertaking a offensive, was their term, uh, in response to Armenian provocations. Um, it didn't say what those provocations were. It hasn't even really bothered to explain what those provocations were. Um, It doesn't really seem like um, they're even trying to hide the fact that they started uh, the the fighting. And the Armenian side of course claims that that Azerbaijan started this uh, and that, you know, I think that is uh, basically what's happened. Uh, when I talk about claims and counterclaims, it's more, you know, that each side claims to have taken a village or a strategic, t- you know, peak or shot down a UAV or so on and so forth. And these are the, the kind of things that are hard to sort out. But uh, it does seem like this is... So to to take a step back a little bit, I mean, in, in this war that happened as the Soviet Union collapsed, uh, Armenia uh, captured a lot of Azerbaijani territory. Um, And ever since then, uh, Azerbaijan has been trying to get it back. Um, There have been skirmishes, and we can get into all this uh, in more detail later. There have been skirmishes and small-scale fighting and so on. Um, This has seemed to be the first time that Azerbaijan might really be trying to get a substantial amount of that territory back militarily. Um, So that's really the, the significance of this. And so I think everyone who's following this conflict has for a long time been kind of expecting this, um, whether this is the big one, whether this is the attempt to take back um, the entire uh, amount of their lost territory, I'm not sure. I don't think that's necessarily the case, but it's definitely the most ambitious. Uh, and so, you know, we've all been kind of waiting for this this big offensive that, that Azerbaijan might undertake. And so uh, it didn't necessarily come as a big surprise.
0: Okay. Um, one, the one other, I guess detail that we should get out of the way, uh, or, or you know mention at this at the top here is,, uh, do we have a, uh, is there a good sense of uh, casualties at this point? I know, again, one of the kind of competing claims that you get is, each side claims to have killed, you know, massive numbers of the enemy and, and having suffered uh, very few losses uh, itself. Uh, and that can be hard to unpack. But, you know, there are also obviously civilians to consider. Uh, is there, do, do we have a good sense of, of the extent of the fighting in that respect? Uh,
1: as of yesterday, um, Armenia announced, I believe it was 59 people. Um, had been killed on the Armenian side. The Azerbaijanis have not um, announced any formal numbers, so we don't we don't really have any idea. And then, of course, you're right. Both sides are saying that they've killed hundreds uh, of troops on the other side, um, which is probably not true. Um, but in terms of the what's actually been, and I, I think Armenia, I don't know if Armenia has has um, issued updated numbers today, but as of yesterday, I think
0: it was 59. Okay. All right. Um, all right. Well, so yes, let's uh, so let's take several steps back uh, at this point, having established what's happening, what's been happening over the last couple of days. Um, tell us about some of the background to this conflict, and I want to go. You know, let's get very basic here to start. Um, talk about. You know, what is the Nagorno-Karabakh region? Um, where is it located? Um, and how is it that this, um, uh, majority Armenian enclave, which I think, you know, we can, we can say is, is, is demographically, uh, majority Armenian, at least at at the core in its core region. Uh, how is it that this region came to be part of Azerbaijan in the first place? Kind of how, how, where do we go? How far back do we need to go to understand that?
1: Right. Well, so the key date of that question is, uh, 1921. Um, But to go back a little bit further, so basically... Okay, so Armenia and Azerbaijan are former Soviet republics, um, used to be part of the Soviet Union. They um, both border uh, Iran and both border Turkey. They're in the uh, southwestern corner of the former Soviet Union. Um, For centuries, Armenians and Azerbaijanis lived in this area pretty mixed together uh, and without any particular problems. Um, and that began to change kind of at the end of the 19th century, and especially at the beginning of the 20th century, uh, when there was a sort of national movements arose uh, in, in both uh, communities. Um, there were um, labor riots, actually labor uh, struggles in uh, Baku, uh, which was the main city of the region at the time between Armenians and Azerbaijanis. Uh, which took on a kind of ethnic um, component uh, that was in 1905. I think that was the first real um, clashes between Armenians and Azerbaijanis. Um, then these things kind of continued um, sporadically over the next few years uh, in different places where uh, Armenians and Azerbaijanis lived together. Uh, and then you had the, the fall of the Russian Empire. Oh, I should add that at this point, everything uh, we're talking about was part of the Russian Empire. Um, in 1917, as we know, the Russian Empire uh, was overthrown by the Bolsheviks, uh, and that uh, set into motion a kind of a very confusing period in the South Caucasus, uh, when for a while um, the the entire territory of the South Caucasus, which is today's Georgia, Armenia, and Azerbaijan, were briefly one country, um, that lasted about a month. Um, and then they split up into three countries, the, the same three countries that exist today, Georgia, Armenia, and Azerbaijan. Um, but uh, there were immediately fights over the borders between those countries. Um, the Russian empire had um, had, had, had uh, kind of administrative districts that had no uh, connection to um, ethnic uh, belonging and didn't even try to have any connection to, to ethnic belonging. Uh, and then once, but once the Russian Empire collapsed, then these three ethnic groups, which were the three biggest ethnic groups uh, in the region, uh, tried to sort of grab as much territory for themselves as they could uh, and then what happened was that the Soviet uh, forces, the Bolsheviks eventually managed to um, gain control in the South Caucasus and this happened uh, starting in about 1920 um, then the, the, the critical date for this conflict really is when. Um, so at that point, so the Bolsheviks took control, and then they had to themselves demarcate the borders uh, between what at the time were just internal.
0: You know, they were still just basically administrative divisions within within the Soviet Union. And this was I mean, this was an open war, basically, from the end of World War One, the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, the collapse of the Russian Empire uh, until the resumption of some kind of central control uh, out of Moscow. Is is it I mean, can we call this an uh, the first Nagorno-Karabakh war in that sense? It was a kind of wide-ranging
1: set of fighting between all of these countries, but in particular in between the um, Armenians and the Azerbaijanis. But it took place in a lot of different places as well. Um, there's other territories that at the time were under dispute. Um, there is Nakhchivan, which is today part of Azerbaijan. Um, there is Zangazur, which is today part of Armenia. Um, both, you know, the other country wanted, um, you know, that. Are, The Azerbaijanis wanted Zangazur, the Armenians wanted Nakhchavan. And so there was fighting kind of across um, the the region. So you shouldn't really say that it was a a Nagorno-Karabakh war per se. Um, It was a war for territory generally um, across the region. Um, And so, yeah, so that was going on at the same time that the the Bolsheviks were trying to um, take uh, control of the South Caucasus, and that also involved fighting um, and so, the story of how Karabakh came to be included as part of Azerbaijan, um, there were there was a sort of uh, Soviet Bolshevik border commission meeting uh, in 1921 to try to hammer out these um, uh, these issues. And there's a, there's a popular narrative in uh, the Caucasus and not only in the Caucasus; it's all over the Soviet Union that. Um, Stalin created these internal borders as time bombs um, that, you know, in the case of the collapse of the Soviet Union, that everything would um, go haywire because of all these difficult borders that he created. Um, That's not the the case. Um, What happened was, I mean, the Soviet Union was barely holding itself together at the time and they didn't have the, the luxury really of long term planning. Um, and so what actually the, the, the reason for this, um, why, you know, there, there are arguments, um, Nagorno-Karabakh, as you said, uh, itself, uh, you know, depending on how you drew the borders at that time was um, uh, Armenian, was a sort of compact Armenian territory. But it depends how you draw the borders. And, um, you know, again, all these things were so mixed up. Uh, but Armenians were trying to get control of that uh, territory as well, uh, both arguing Uh, on the partially on the basis of, um, you know, ethnic belonging. Um, Azerbaijan also is making the additional argument of sort of economically, I mean, geographically, if you go to the region, I mean, it's Karabakh is a little bit, um, a it's, um, it is, there is actually a gap between, um, Armenia and the, what, what the Soviets eventually drew the borders around Nagorno-Karabakh. Uh, Nagorno-Karabakh itself was a little island inside of Azerbaijan, Um, But the region in general is separated by, you know, some uh, uh, large mountains uh, from Armenia. And so sort of economically, geographically, Karabakh is a little more connected to the rest of Azerbaijan. So that was one of Azerbaijan's arguments as well. Um, But what ultimately appeared to um, sway the Soviets in in determining between um, the the Armenians and the Azerbaijanis was that... um, they had been kind of using it as a this question as a as a bit of a carrot. Uh, so, so at the same time, there was a nationalist Armenian rebellion against the Bolsheviks going on. Um, the Soviets were kind of dangling this as a as a carrot um, to the the Armenians, saying like, join the Soviet Union and you'll get Karabakh. Um, as it happened, uh, it as as this process dragged out. I mean, this was literally a matter of days. The the military situation was changing day to day. Um, the the Bolsheviks managed to defeat this Armenian this nationalist rebellion uh, among the Armenians, at which point they had really no more incentive to give it to um, to Armenia, and so so really it, it hinged on these very contingent um, issues that happened in 1921 that everyone else has has forgotten about. Um, so the, the the point of the story really is that it was a bit of a a, a very short term uh, contingent decision. Um, that of course now has quite significant uh, ramifications, but at the time it didn't really seem like it was going to be that important.
0: So let's go through. I mean, you know, there's almost seventy years of history to uh, to kind of condense into a little little comment here. But uh, um, a, a, you know, this was clearly something that uh, Soviet planners recognized as a potential issue. Uh, they were aware of it in 1920, 1921, used it, as you say, to to some degree, to their own uh, political aims. Um, and and yet, you know, I, well, OK, so let's let's talk about this. Was there any attempt made in that, you know, very lengthy period of time where the Soviet Union was still in existence uh, to resolve any of these issues, and not just Nagorno-Karabakh, but you know, you've talked about Nakhchivan and and some of the other kind of scattered enclaves. This is, I mean, this is also a problem in Central Asia, right, where there's little exclaves and enclaves, and the borders aren't well defined. And uh, my, I, I wonder, you know, was there any kind of push uh, in, during in the Soviet period to kind of resolve some of these issues or was the feeling sort of, you know, it's all one country now anyway, who cares? Uh, or was there something else, some other kind of uh, attitude at play?
1: The latter. I mean, after these, the sort of chaotic days of the, the early 1920s, um, everything settled down and the question was more or less considered um, settled. Um, it did sort of toward, toward the end of the Soviet Union, um, like it, I, I believe this really started in the 70s, um, and this was not unique to the Caucasus. This was kind of going on around uh, the Soviet Union. There, be, there arose these kind of nationalist uh, movements, mainly among intellectuals, academics, um, historians, who started telling kind of um, irredentist stories about their particular group and how their particular group was being um, you know, mistreated in the Soviet Union. Um, And that definitely, that included uh, both Armenians and Azerbaijanis. Um, And then in the 80s, you had, uh, in particular in Armenia, uh, a nationalist movement uh, that was one of the strongest in the the former Soviet Union that uh, was called the Karabakh movement. Uh, And its main demand was that uh, Karabakh should uh, become part of Armenia. Uh, and so on the official level, no, the the Soviets until the very end uh, were demanding that, no, everything has to remain exactly as it is. Uh, but there was this sort of, um, I don't want to call it grassroots because it was its own sort of elite uh, intellectual movement, uh, but anti-Soviet uh, movements to uh, sort of reconsider these, these questions.
0: So let's talk about uh, the rise of the Karabakh movement and, and Armenian nationalism in this region. What, what uh, shape did that take? I mean, you, you said, you know, started uh, kind of across the Soviet Union in the 1970s. Um, and, and, you know, this is building towards uh, a war that really begins sort of before the, the final collapse of the Soviet Union on a low, kind of in a low level uh, sense. Um, what shape did the did this movement take, and at what point uh, did things start to become kind of violent? what point was there the this sort of kind of violent rejection of uh, Azerbaijan's status and control of this uh, this region? right
1: um, well, so this uh, this Karbach movement uh basically, you know, it started as, you know, it was, it was both a sort of anti-Soviet democratic movement and a nationalist uh, movement um, together. Uh, and eventually this led, you know, this um, led, uh, as part of this, um, Armenians living in Karabakh at the time um, to petition to to secede from Soviet Azerbaijan and join Soviet Armenia. Um, the, the Azerbaijani population of Karabakh rejected that. Um, the the Azerbaijani Soviet leadership uh, in Baku rejected that. Uh, But this is then what um, started, it started as a political fight and then there were sporadic uh, incidents of violence here and there. Uh, And then the first really big uh, incidents of violence were um, in uh, Azerbaijan, in in Baku, and in another city, Sumgait, uh, where there were pogroms against the ethnic Armenian population um, living there. Uh, and that really um, accelerated things and accelerated the movement to, um, for, for Karabakh to uh, secede from what this was still, a, at this point, everything was inside the Soviet Union, um, to secede from Soviet Azerbaijan and join Soviet Armenia. Uh, but not long after this, uh, the Soviet Union collapsed, Armenia and Azerbaijan became independent countries, and then it became this uh, interstate war.
0: Right, so let's um, yeah, let's talk about that war, um, which you say sort of began on a a low level with kind of ethnic cleansing attacks, pogroms um, escalated in the last couple of years, 1988, 1990. Uh, last couple of years of the Soviet Union at a, into a kind of low-level conflict, and then erupted really uh, with the fall of the Soviet Union into a, a, an interstate war. the the, um, the end result of that was, uh, I think, uh, you correct me if I'm wrong, but pretty clearly an Armenian victory. Uh, Armenia is left in control of Nagorno Karabakh. Plus, and and I wonder, you know, how how big a deal? Like, how how if you can separate? If it's possible to even separate these things, um, it, it's not just in control of Nagorno Karabakh now. It's it controls uh, a lot of. Other, you know, kind of extra Azerbaijani territory around Nagorno Karabakh, uh, connecting uh, the enclave to the rest of Armenia. Um, Talk a little bit about how that war proceeded and and you know the the kind of lingering effects of the outcome.
1: Yeah, so I mean, you're you're right. That is a very big distinction, and it's a really important distinction to make um, between the two kinds of territories that we're talking about. Uh, because, yes, uh, Karabakh itself was, uh, I believe, by the end of the Soviet period, something like 70 percent, 75 percent ethnic Armenian. Uh, but as a result of the war, um, Armenian forces took a much larger territory um, where outside of, of Karabakh, there were very few. Um, it was a negligible um, Azerbaijani population or I'm sorry, negligible Armenian population. And so all of those people left um, were ethnically cleansed, basically. Uh, and so that totals like six—that's like six hundred thousand people were forced to flee uh, ethnic Azerbaijanis. Um, meanwhile, ethnic Armenians all had to flee who were living in Azerbaijan. There were also ethnic Azerbaijanis living in uh, Armenia, the, the Soviet Republic of Armenia. They all fled. Um, so, but the biggest chunk of these uh, refugees and IDPs were the the the. The ethnic Azerbaijanis who had been living in these districts, uh, there's seven of them that that were surrounding um Nagorno-Karabakh that, that the, the Armenian forces took over. Uh so yeah, that has become a key element in the 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 peace negotiations between the two sides. Um they there had been a kind of assumption, uh the the the, the role of those territories uh has sort of morphed over the years um in the uh, the early days, they were taken as a kind of security buffer slash uh, bargaining chip as something that the Armenians would give back um, in recognition for something else, for example, control over Karabakh. Um, as it's gone on uh, over the years and the decades, um, the, the Armenian position on that has become more intransigent and there's now um, very little support for giving back those territories to Azerbaijan. And so that's kind of hardened uh, a lot of the um, the attitudes on both sides.
0: Has there been any effort, um, you know, with this war kind of freezing, basically? I mean, it was a ceasefire. There wasn't really a, a, a final political resolution. It was just an agreement to stop fighting. Um, has there been any effort to address... The allegations, at least, um, of ethnic cleansing on on either part, you know, you've talked about the the pogroms against the Armenian population, you've talked about uh, the ethnic cleansing of the Azerbaijani population in that area around Karabakh. Has there been any attempt to sort of address these things and maybe not resolve them but at least acknowledge them anything like that well i mean this is a key demand of the Azerbaijani side
1: that they be allowed to let their um you know the people who were forced to flee their homes uh back into at least the the occupied territories uh and probably Nagorno-Karabakh as well i mean that's the 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 full demand is into Nagorno-Karabakh as well i mean the negotiations that have gone on suggest that maybe there there is a significant difference um, between how or, or or some kind of difference uh, between how Azerbaijan might treat um, those two territories in terms of the the return of the IDPs um, in terms of the the Armenians who were forced to flee from baku and the and, and the rest of Azerbaijan uh, and the um, Azerbaijanis who were forced to flee Soviet Armenia—that's more or less considered lost. Um, you know, that's that's a done deal, and nobody's really um, expecting to go back. No Armenians are expected to move back to Baku, for example. Um, but the, those those occupied territories, definitely, there is an expectation among the Azerbaijanis that they will be able to return. Uh,
0: let's talk about. I mean, again, we're sort of, you know, trying to to summarize a lot of stuff in in a very short amount of time. Um, talk about, you know in this in this period since uh, 1994, have there been any um promising, I mean there have been efforts at negotiating a settlement to this situation uh, there have been flare-ups, as you say, none of them seem uh, you know as serious as the one that's now underway um has there been any, uh, point at which it really looked like a resolution was possible? Um, and, and if so, what happened or, or, you know, have we sort of just been in this, uh, kind of state of frozen conflict ever since?
1: Yeah. I mean, in the early days, um, there were definitely, uh, promising moments. I mean, there was, um, so yeah, so there've been peace negotiations going on for that and for this entire time, basically, um, with, um, uh, at various levels, and I, th- I think it was 2001, if it wasn't, it was around 2001, there was a summit in Key West um, between the two presidents at the time, um, and they were, reportedly, they had a deal, basically, uh, and they, so the deal was basically, the the, the rough outlines of it were that um, Armenia was going to get control of Karabakh, um, plus a little corridor uh, connecting Armenia to, to Karabakh. Um, the the rest of the occupied territories were gonna be returned to Azerbaijan, and Azerbaijan also was gonna get a little corridor linking um, the, the quote-unquote mainland of Azerbaijan with Nakhchivan, which is a, a part of uh, Azerbaijan that is uh, an exclave. It's separated from um, the rest of Azerbaijan by some Armenian territory. Uh, and so Azerbaijan was going to get a little corridor like that. And they were apparently, uh, you know, they had the deal and they were ready to sign. And at the, at the last moment, Haider Aliyev, who was the, the president of Azerbaijan at the time, uh, walked out. And I believe it's not been yet explained why why he um, walked out. But, I mean, they were really, 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 really close uh, in 2001. Uh, but then since then, there's really been, you know, the, the prospects have just been getting more and more and more grim. Um, There was a moment of um, hope. So um, you may be aware that in 2018, uh, there was a revolution uh, in Armenia uh, where a new... So Armenia had been controlled by these kind of autocrat guys who were all connected to um, the military leadership during the war.
0: Let me stop you for just a moment. I apologize. But uh, I want to get to the politics... Uh, in a minute and and sort of the understanding the ways that uh, this conflict has become kind of an an immutable part of uh, Armenian and Azerbaijani politics. But before we get there, uh, I want to take maybe a little wider view uh, and talk about uh, what other factors are in play here uh, in terms of aside from just the territorial question, aside from the uh, kind of irredentism or the, you know, the the disposition of Karabakh and the territories around it, uh, what other factors are at play? Is, is there any developments, for example, that have changed the nature of this conflict? I know sort of Azerbaijan's rise as kind of a little regional energy hub has, has been a major development in the Caucasus. Uh, has that changed the nature of the conflict? And are there any other factors uh, at work here that have um, kind of uh, underpin uh, the hostility between these two countries besides, you know, just the most obvious one?
1: Um, well, definitely Azerbaijan's uh, oil and gas, they also have a lot of natural gas. Um, money have uh, changed the situation. Um, during the war in the the 90s, Armenia had a, a military advantage um, uh which Azerbaijan has managed to over the decades uh, of getting this oil and natural gas money, they've invested a, a lot of money into their military, and so they um, are now much more militarily capable than Armenia. And we've never really—it's you know—I don't know that anybody can very qualitatively judge or, or very you know accurately judge you know the the military balance at this point, um, but they they're a lot stronger than they used to be. Uh, and so that has definitely changed the dynamics of the, the conflict. But other than that, I mean I would say the main thing that's changed is just time and um, a sort of hardening of attitudes and the governments in both sides have really not um, uh, you know have have just fueled um, hatred for the other side uh, and the space for kind of peaceful talks and the, the space for uh, dialogue and coexistence has, has shrunk uh, steadily over the years. Uh, and so now you have, you know, you, we're like one generation on from those days. And so you have a whole generation of people who never lived with the other side, who have only been getting super nationalist uh, messages in their media and in their textbooks and so on. Uh, and so the attitudes have gotten much harder uh, on both sides. That's, I would say, the the major um, the major development.
0: Okay. And that, I mean, that sort of brings us to politics then. I mean, the, you, you, you brought up uh, Haider Aliyev and, and, you know, his, uh, decision to walk out in 2001 from the peace talks. He's since, uh, been replaced by his son, Ilham Aliyev, uh, in 2003. And, and he's kind of, you know, controlled, uh, ruled Azerbaijan since. Um, Armenia was under the uh, uh, the Republican Party, you know, rule for, for quite a, quite some time. Uh, you were starting to talk about the the so called Velvet Revolution in 2018 that brought Nikol Pashinyan to power. Uh, how how has this conflict shaped politics in in Azerbaijan and Armenia over the past you know 25 years or, or uh, whatever it's been?
1: Well, I mean, that's a very big question. I mean, I think that the, um, you know, the the quick, the short answer is that, I mean, I I think on both sides and and people in the opposition, liberals on both sides, always complained that the the conflict kind of drowned out um, any room for political pluralism, that it was all the government can always say, we're in a state of war, we cannot have this kind of, you know, arguing, (laughs) we need unity. Uh, And this was always a trump card that um, both governments could play um, uh, and to kind of uh, nullify any opposition. um, That has worked in Azerbaijan, uh, and it was kind of, it seemed to be working in Armenia until 2018, until this Velvet Revolution, when uh, Pashinyan uh, did manage to, um, who's not connected to this, uh, the Karabakh War, he didn't even fight in the war. even though he's of the the age uh, that he might have um, he and he was an opposition journalist he's very from very outside this world um, and came to you know to, to power uh, promising democracy and an end to the corruption that had been uh, uh, plaguing Armenia and so on and so they, that kind of uh, disproved this theory um, that because he managed to change the government uh, in a more democratic direction we can say. Um, uh, despite the fact that this uh conflict um, was was continuing and was was still not um, anywhere close to getting resolved um, and then in the that was sort of the last hopeful moment uh for this conflict because shortly after he came to power, so he you know he he had no connection to this conflict, and when he campaigned, he didn 't talk about it at all his his sort of platform was purely internal. Um, about defeating corruption and bringing democracy, um, and the the governments on both sides keep these negotiations and anything related to the conflict, uh, you know, super close hold, and only people at the very very highest level uh, have anything to do with decision making in those. And so, somebody like Pashinyan comes, who was totally outside of these circles, uh, and he really was out of the loop. And so, it took a while to get um, caught up. Uh, But then when he did, there was a, there was a a moment It was, um, now it seems kind of naive, but there was a moment when uh, he met Ilham Aliyev and um, the two sides agreed to uh, use this phrase that became famous to prepare the populations for peace. Um, And so that at the time seemed at least a positive step. It was the first positive thing that had happened in a long time that suggested at least that um, they were going to kind of step back, dial back this, uh, nationalist rhetoric and and hatred toward the other side, um, but ultimately that didn't really last long. Very little, I think, happened as a as a result of that. Uh, and in the end, Pashinyan kind of uh, adopted the the same discourse that his predecessors had. Uh, and I think sometimes, you know, for somebody like him, he's he's vulnerable to getting kind of outflanked on the nationalist uh, side, and so he sort of felt like he maybe at times had to be more um, nationalist and more aggressive uh, than his predecessors, or he just wanted to do it, it's not clear. But uh, in any case, um, he has, has really not um, offered anything new uh, to, the, to the peace process. And I think that's probably uh, one of the, the most critical uh, developments, I think, in this, why, we're, why we are where we are now, uh, is these kind of dashed expectations.
0: There also appears to be some political movement happening in Azerbaijan, which has been, you know, mostly a a kind of authoritarian-ish system uh, with the Aliyevs in control. But there seems to be some um, kind of infighting right now between um, kind of old guard elements and uh, a sort of new guard associated with the Ilham Aliyev's wife and his, who is also his vice president and maybe, uh, you know, being maybe in line to succeed him at some point. Um, do you have any sense of whether that political kind of infighting is fueling any of this and, uh, you know, has any role to play here or is that, is that largely a separate? I think thing? it's a separate issue. I think that's uh there is definitely
1: a, a strong kind of, um, uh, internal struggle going on, but i don 't think that that has a strong um, effect on uh, the conflict there 's a pretty broad um, consensus across the azerbaijani political world, and that includes the opposition uh, about what uh, needs to be done in karabakh so that's that yeah that i don 't think that's a that 's really a factor uh,
0: and the The other political question I wanted to ask you is um, to what extent has there been is there now uh any kind of daylight between the armenian government uh, the you know the one that Pashinyan's leading and the regional karabakh government um you know has there is there any uh are they basically on the same page is there any kind of uh, uh, tension there uh, and does that kind of feed into to the situation at all
1: Right. I, there had been um, some tension um, when Pashinyan came to power. So the, the, the de facto, yeah, so we did, didn't really mention this. So now, like, uh, who's in control of this territory of Nagorno-Karabakh in these seven occupied territories is this um, government uh, called the Nagorno-Karabakh Republic. Nobody recognizes them, even Armenia, um, but they do manage um, the, the affairs in that territory. Um, they are heavily backed by Armenia. Um, I think it's something like fifty percent of their budget comes from Armenia. Um, the I don't know if the, anybody has the numbers, but uh, you know a large portion of Armenia's armed forces serve in Nagorno-Karabakh, so they're very closely connected, especially on strategic terms. There was some interesting uh, tension in the in the early Pashinyan days when um, the. Um, the, the the leadership of this Nagorno-Karabakh Republic um, was closely allied to the regime that Pashinyan had overthrown in Armenia. And so there was some tension and there was even some worries that that was going to be a kind of um, kind of rear guard action, or that's not the, the uh, phrase I'm looking for, um, kind of the, the, the rear base for a, a kind of return of the old regime, um, that they were going to gather their forces in Karabakh uh, and then um, possibly uh, re-overthrow uh, Pashinyan. That didn't happen. Uh, they ended up having early elections in Karabakh, uh, in which a guy who uh, tried to, uh, he's tried to kind of um, uh, tie himself closely to Pashinyan, uh, won uh, the presidential elections. Uh, and so now everyone's fairly on the same page again. But even at the times when there was the, the sensitivity, I mean, the... Um, there wasn't a lot of daylight between between the two governments. I think there, the, 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 the closest there might have been, I mean, had, had a government in Armenia wanted to make some concessions, including territorial concessions, they probably would have gotten some pushback uh, from Karabakh. Um, that would have been easier to manage when the old regime was in power in Yerevan um, because they had such close connections to Karabakh. Uh, it would be much more difficult for Pashinyan to do that Um, but in any case, it doesn't seem like he wants to do it
0: anyway. So this is actually the second major border clash, although this one seems much more serious, um, between Armenia and Azerbaijan this year. Um, I wonder if you could, uh, talk a little bit about the confrontation earlier this summer. Um, what, what that was about, because it wasn't in the Nagorno-Karabakh region. It was actually a different area of the border, um, and And whether there's any and is this sort of uh, is there a connection? Is this a kind of a a, a building thing, or was that a separate uh, kind of thing altogether?
1: Well, yeah, so there was a, there was a, a, a round of fighting in July that was actually on the um, not in Karabakh or the occupied territories, but on the actual international border between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Uh, which, is, which was relatively rare, it is relatively rare uh, for there to be fighting on that border uh, because nobody, Azerbaijan doesn't have any claims towards you know, Armenia proper. Um, it appears that that was just an accident. Um, both sides accused the other of starting it and nobody at this point still knows um, who started it. And I think it was probably just um, you know, a, a small incident that kind of spiraled out of control. Um, I do think that that, um, even though that was basically an accident, I think it did set into motion some factors that led us to where we are now. Um, For one thing, in the few days following that, there was a massive protest uh, demonstration in uh, Azerbaijan uh, following the funeral of one of the military officers who uh, who was killed in the fighting. And so they had his funeral uh, in some part of Baku and then a crowd started to march uh, downtown to the government building uh, and it grew and grew and it, by some estimates, it was 50,000 people. And I mean, this to have a demonstration of 50,000 people in Azerbaijan is uh, unprecedented. Um, and, and it was also, it was very pro-war, chanting pro-war slogans and anti-government slogans. And um, I think it probably freaked the government out uh, that uh, there's been this kind of, uh, under the surface sentiment, uh, under the surface, because the government doesn't allow <laughs> things like this to be expressed, uh, but that uh, that the government is sort of all talk and no action on karabakh uh, and that uh, people are getting impatient uh, and people wanted to uh, get their territory returned and this this skirmish, even though it was kind of an accident, sort of awoke that um, that sentiment uh, in people, and I think that probably made the government realize that this is a really serious um, public opinion issue that we have to we have to pay attention to. Um, Secondly, that uh, all that fighting again, even though it was an accident, it seemed to also awaken Turkey's uh, renewed interest in this um, conflict. And I usually am always trying to downplay the international element of this conflict because everyone wants to talk (laughs) about everyone wants to talk about the international angle (laughs) um, because everyone is thinking, oh, this is a Russia Turkey proxy conflict. Um, that's sort of, and I, I mean, I get it because if this is so obscure. Um, we've probably lost, you know, 90% of your listeners already because they're like, what on earth is going on in this place that I've never heard of? And so as a sort of reference, I understand. So Azerbaijan is backed by by Turkey uh, and Armenia is to a degree backed by Russia. Um, those, those backings have been a little bit uh, shallow, I would say, and... Um, the 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 main drivers of the conflict are overwhelmingly internal from Armenia and Azerbaijan. However, uh, the the Turkey factor really became uh, more prominent following this fighting in July, and Turkey, for whatever reason, um, really got much more involved uh, in the conflict, and and it still has seemed to be rhetorical, largely. Um, but it's mu- it's rhetoric at a much higher level, um, and so there have been constant visits and phone calls, and they every year the two sides had military exercises. But this year the military exercises were bigger, um, and so and now since Sunday when the fightings come out, I mean Turkey the Turkish press has gone bananas over this. I mean it's really a huge issue in Turkey, um, and if you have been paying attention to Turkey. They've been quite uh, ambitious, let's say, in their foreign policy in uh, in the last few years, increasingly so. That's a good way to put it. And this is this appears to be, um, you know, their next kind of place where they want to throw their weight around, um, which would have really very uh, dire consequences for the conflict.
0: Well, it's I mean, it's it's sort of uh, the statement that I saw from from the Turkish government is Armenia is the greatest threat to regional security, which is the thing they were saying about like Cyprus last week and France the week before that and Greece the week before that. And it's uh, it's sort of this ongoing um, kind of need to point to a country as the enemy to kind of, I think, partly to fuel uh, as you say, a, a more ambitious foreign policy, a more kind of an, an effort to remake Turkey as a as a genuine regional power, um, and also I think for a government that's under a lot of pressure economically speaking, it's it's useful to be able to point to these other countries and uh, say, "Ha, ah, there's the enemy. We have to, you know, focus on that. Don't worry about what's going on here." Um, so yeah, I, I you know that's this is sort of. How new is this? Because my, my impression has been like Turkey, as you say, has had a sort of rhetorical relationship with Azerbaijan, but it's basically uh, its policy has been to leave the, the South Caucasus uh, with the understanding that it's more Russia's backyard than Turkey's backyard and to kind of, uh, you know, take a hands off approach. But but that's that's not that doesn't seem to be the case anymore.
1: Right. That does not seem to be the case anymore. And we still, it's still pretty unclear. I mean, we still really don't know what they're, what they want to do. I mean, they probably don't know what they want to do. Um, there, I mean, it's been, I would say, and, you know, since this fighting started, it's been probably the number one hottest debated topic, um, uh, in this conflict is what is exactly is Turkey's angle, um, Armenian officials and the the de facto nagorno Karabakh government officials have been accusing Turkey of directly militarily intervening uh sending weapons um, sending mercenaries from syria um, who knows um, uh, the there have been interesting somewhat credible reports about the uh, the mercenary issue um, which would you know again be. Just, you know, it would uh, really, really upend this whole thing. Um, So, but yes, there are credible reports that Turkey has uh, been trying to recruit uh, militants from Syria to go fight. Uh, I'm I'm still on the fence on those, but um, it would be a massively destructive uh, move. Uh, so yeah, Turkey's angle is, uh, is very unclear and it's, you know, and, and Russia's, um, involvement this time around has been very quiet. Um, they have done almost nothing. Um, they, like everyone else except Turkey have been saying, you know, we call on both sides to cease fire immediately and so on. Um, but they seem to be, uh, quite, uh, you know, trying to sit this one out, um, I don't know what to make of that. Um, You know, another interesting angle of the the, the Velvet Revolution was that uh, a lot of people came to power who... Pashinyan himself doesn't seem like he's anti-Russian. He seems pretty... Or pro-Western. He's pretty agnostic on those questions, I would say. Um, But a lot of the people in his team um, and a lot of the people who are in relatively high positions now were... um, people who are in, you know, pro-Western NGOs, Soros-funded NGOs, and the kind of things that makes, you know, people freak out in the Kremlin. Uh, And so Armenia has done a pretty good job of kind of threading this needle and not antagonizing Russia in spite of all these things. Um, But it's also clear that Moscow doesn't have a lot of love uh, for this government. And I don't think you know, I mean, for Russia, it's really difficult. I mean, they I don't think they have any love for this government and they would love um, Pashinyan to be taken down a peg, but they also, I think, you know, they don't have very many allies in the world and they can't just let one of them go, uh, leave them hanging because that uh, obviously uh, does a lot to your credibility. And so I, I really don't know what Russia's thinking in, in this conflict. Um, But so far, they've been quite quiet.
0: One of the concerns you frequently see um, offered in the media about this conflict in particular is it's often viewed as a potential flashpoint for a broader conflict uh, that could suck in a lot of other players in the region and then expand from there. Um, we've, we've talked a little bit here about the, the Russia-Turkey angle, which seems maybe, um, you know, particularly relevant, but are there other, what are the other kind of regional players at work here? Is Iran, um, you know, they have a lot of their own problems to deal with, obviously, uh, but are they a factor here? And, and is this a, a, a situation that could get out of hand and, and expand, uh, into a wider conflict?
1: Yeah. I mean, to say one more word about Russia, I mean, I do think that, you know, Russia is very concerned about its, um, another factor that they're probably considering now. Um, they're very concerned about their sort of idea of um, kind of uh, spheres of interest. Uh, and the, and as you said originally, I mean, Turkey did defer to Russia and Russia definitely considers the South Caucasus to be its sphere of interest. Um, what would happen if, Turkey just came in and started throwing its weight around and determined the fate of this conflict. Um, I think Russia would react badly to that. Um, As you said, you know, I don't even pretend to keep track of the, you know, what's going on with Russia-Turkey relations. Um, But I don't think Russia would be happy (laughs) with that happening. Uh, What, what, uh, what that would, you know, what that would mean, I have no idea. Uh, and nobody, I don't think, has any idea. Beyond that, I mean, the Iranian factor is really very marginal, which is kind of surprising given how big it is and how how it, um, you know, borders both countries. But Iran basically tries to stay out of it. It tries to keep, and it does keep good relations with both countries. Um, So that's, it's a pretty much a non-factor. And that's it, really. Um, there's not a lot of uh, foreign interest in this conflict.
0: To close us out, I'd like to talk a little bit about where you see things going, both in terms of this specific flare-up and the conflict uh, more generally. I mean, you said earlier that uh, this may be, probably isn't, but maybe be the uh, uh, Azerbaijan's, you know, final kind of attempt to retake all the territory it lost in the the 1990s. Um, obviously, even if if this isn't that attempt. Uh, that suggests that such an attempt is coming at some point, uh, sort of inevitably. Um, one of the things that's that's become apparent to me in having this conversation with you is that it seems like the Armenian and Azerbaijani publics are almost out in front of their governments in terms of being kind of gung-ho uh, you know, for conflict, or at least opposed to the kind of concessions that would be required to reach a political sentiment, which seems like a dangerous situation to be in, uh, in that those publics can then pull their government uh, along behind them into something. Um, so, my I guess basically my question is: Are you optimistic about the uh, the future here, or are you pessimistic?
1: Uh, well, I'm definitely pessimistic. I don't know what form, um, you know, what's that's going to. T- I mean, every, you know, you're you're right. Uh, yeah, I agree with everything you said. And every time there's more fighting like this, the attitudes become harder um, and m- more. Unlike you know, so from what I what I'm actually working on today, and this this may be published uh, by the time uh, your your podcast gets released, um, is a, a piece on you know trying to figure out what is uh, Azerbaijan's strategic goal in this particular offensive. Um, from the Azerbaijani analysts that I've talked to, it appears to be that they think it may be one or two of these occupied territories in full. So in, in previous um fighting, you know, Azerbaijan maybe took one hill. Um and then they, they make quite a big deal about it. Um, you know, we took this hill. At some point taking a hill is not satisfying um uh the public. Uh the it doesn't seem like this is the 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 attempt to take back all the territory, but it does seem like it maybe they're trying to take an entire district or two um back. But if they do that, you know I don't know that it's going to i mean it's there was already very, very little chance for a diplomatic resolution, and I don't see how that would make the Armenians any more inclined to give up the rest of the occupied territories um, so I don't really know what um what is going to to come of that um, but I think in this short term they do seem to be trying they do seem to have a pretty ambitious territorial um relatively ambitious territorial uh uh goal for this this round of fighting.
0: What if anything, I mean the, the you know the UN Security Council is scheduled to meet on to discuss the the flare up and and you know this has sort of generated a flurry of international uh comments, most of them as you as you say have been of the uh you know we call on both sides to stand down, blah, 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 the the usual kind of diplomatic uh, language that you see around a situation like this. Um, is there a, a role that that the international community can play? Can it have any effect uh, in actually achieving kind of an end to the fighting? Uh, or, you know, one of the things I, you know, I, I wonder about is, Um, you know, is the effect just to sort of freeze things in place and then kind of make things worse the next time, the next time around, you know, when the international community gets involved? And I guess specifically, you know, is there, if you were advising, um, leaving aside the uh, eccentricities of the current president of the United States, uh, if you were advising, you know, the U.S. government, is there a role that Washington can play? Is there a role that the U.N. can play uh, that could be productive here? I mean,
1: it's definitely the case that uh, the U.S. and, you know, Europe and other countries have, have taken, have kind of stopped paying attention to this um, conflict. Uh, there was a lot higher level engagement uh, in the early days. Uh, and now, I mean, I don't know when um, there's been, I don't know if Pompeo has said really anything significant on this at all. or or met with the people? I mean, if it it has, it's been absolutely um, insignificant. I mean, there was a a kind of uh, funny, sad um, moment when John Bolton, when he was um, uh, National Security Advisor, uh, went to the region and he visited both um, uh, Armenia and Azerbaijan. And this is a kind of interesting Iran angle. So uh, as a result of this conflict, Armenia... Armenia has four borders, borders four countries, Georgia, uh, Turkey, Iran, and Azerbaijan. The border with Azerbaijan is closed, obviously, and then Turkey closed its border in 1993 uh, when the fighting was going on with um, with Azerbaijan. So now Armenia has two open borders, one of which is with Iran. And so it's quite important to them to have reasonable relationships uh, with Iran. Um, of course, John Bolton uh, didn't uh, sympathize with um, where most, you know, e- even when there had been quite a, a serious, you know, anti-Iranian policy from the U.S., there's always been a sort of exception carved out for Armenia, um, realizing like this, it's not their fault. You know, they <laughs> you let them have their ties with Iran and the U.S. has not pushed uh, uh, Armenia to uh, to sort of join its anti-Iranian coalition um, under Bolton that that seemed like it might be changing. Um, and he made this kind of uh, ridiculous trip um, to, uh, to Armenia. And he publicly said, you know, if you resolve this conflict, then you could um, open up your borders with Azerbaijan and with Turkey and you wouldn't need Iran anymore. Um, and it was just incredibly tone deaf uh, in Armenia. Um, that uh, this what they see is an existential conflict uh, uh, that you know they would just trade it away just so that they could join on to this just, just to help
0: the United
1: just States to help the United and States in this Iran thing. Um, it was you know and uh, uh, so you know and, and Armenia they try to keep good relations with the United States and Pashinyan was o- openly critical of what Bolton said. And, um, but that was the last real attempt, if you could even call that attempt at, uh, at diplomacy. <coughs> Um, from the u s side, um, but I mean all that being said i mean it's at this point it's um, it 's also hard to imagine that like aggressive you know this just means so much more to the Armenians and the Azerbaijanis than it does to anybody else, and so it 's just even if they got all the international condemnation um, it it wouldn't it wouldn't really matter that much. I mean, if you gave Armenia EU membership, if you said, you know, give up Karabakh, I don't, they wouldn't do it, you know. Um, or similarly with Azerbaijan, like they just there's not there's not that much that I think that the rest of the world can offer um, to these countries. So even when there was a period of, you know, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm talking a little bit out of school here. And I uh, but I think that there's very little that the international community could do, to be honest.
0: My last question, I guess, along these same lines is, could we see the Russian government step back in uh, and broker a ceasefire? As you've said, they've been sort of um, hands off for the last three days, maybe unusually so, uh, but it was Russia that brokered the, the ceasefire that ended the conflict in the 1990s. Uh, could we see them step back in in that way as the uh, and try to play peacemaker and and settle this flare up, settle this conflict? I mean, that's the best possibility,
1: uh, honestly. I mean, it's the only possibility of that, of that sort. I mean, they so that there is, a, there is a formal body that has been brokering the negotiations called the Minsk Group, um, and it's led by the US, France, and Russia. Um, Russia of those is by far... So every time the foreign ministers meet, uh, the foreign ministers of Armenia and Azerbaijan meet, or the, the presidents meet there with um, diplomats from... The U.S., France, and Russia, uh, and the but Russia is by far the most active uh, in this, and it cares by far the most. And um, you know, outside of the Minsk Group, you know, the U.S. has very little to do with these countries. France, it's the same. But you know, Sergey Lavrov is calling these guys all the time, uh, and Putin as well. And so Russia is quite involved in this, and so Russia does have good relations with both sides. Um, Russia does have the most um, sort of stake in all of this. So if there's any one country that could bring them together, um, it is Russia. But like I said, you know, Russia's uh, agenda in this is a little bit unclear. Um, and you know, so I, you know, we shouldn't put a, a lot of hopes on that. Um, but they are by far the most active, I would say diplomatically.
0: Again, this is a, a developing situation. It's very fast moving. Some of the information that we've talked about here is probably going to be out of date by the time people listen to this. Uh, so, uh, you know, they should check out your work at Eurasianet, uh, eurasianet.org. Uh, follow you on Twitter. We'll, I'll put a, a link to your Twitter account in the show description. Um, is there anything else that that any other advice that you would have to people if they're trying to uh, stay on top of the the developments coming out of this region
1: uh, i mean i would just say the, the best advice is to don't believe anybody who tells you about some kind of international <laughs> angle um the the real understanding of the conflict has to do with understanding armenia and azerbaijan um and that's unfortunately that's difficult, <laughs> um, but that's you know if there if if somebody's telling you otherwise, they don't really know what they're talking about. I would say is
0: the the, the last message I would. Josh Kuchera, uh thanks for coming on the show, and um, hopefully this won't go much further than it already has. But uh, we'd uh, uh, I'd, I'd love to have you back again uh, uh-huh. at some point to to discuss. Uh, this or any of the many other kind of interesting and uh, sometimes troubling things that are happening in the Caucasus. Sure, sure. Thanks for having me. Once again, I'd like to thank Josh Kuchera of Eurasian Ed for coming on the program, uh, taking us through what we know to this point about the uh, fighting still ongoing in uh, Armenia and Azerbaijan over the nagorno-karabakh region uh, as i say this is a developing story so if you want to stay on top of it i would highly recommend net. i'd recommend josh's uh, twitter feed uh, and foreign exchanges will try to stay on top of it as well uh, as always uh, thank you for listening and until next time take care and i'll talk to you soon